This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. In the stores of Nagorno-Karabakh, the shelves are empty. Ambulances don't have gas. Miscarriages have nearly tripled. And the BBC reports that a third of all deaths there are now from malnutrition. For months, Azerbaijan has blocked access to the Lachin Corridor to Armenia, keeping out humanitarian aid to this ancient Armenian community that is starving to death. Now, my understanding is that one truck went through the Agdam Corridor, uh, one truck for a population of 120,000 Armenians. Before the blockade, there were 120 trucks passing through each day. So let's not be fooled by the regime's attempt to muddy the waters. President Aliyev says he's not organizing ethnic cleansing, but that is exactly what he is doing. By leveraging humanitarian aid, he aims to either coerce the people of Artsakh into political submission or starve them to death. And given that he is reportedly amassing forces along the border, we must be vigilant about military action. So as we sit here today with the lives of so many people hanging in the balance, time is of the essence. The former prosecutor at the International Criminal Court, Luis Moreno Ocampo, recently wrote, and I quote, starvation is the invisible genocide weapon. Without immediate dramatic change, this group of Armenians will be destroyed in a few weeks, close quote. A few weeks. That is how long we have. I would ask our witness to speak to what the department is doing, what the Biden administration is doing, and what the international community must do to avert this atrocity from being carried out before our own eyes. I uh, was pleased to see that Secretary Blinken has recently personally gotten involved, but let me be clear. Our message from the highest levels must be unequivocal. Stop the blockade. Stop threatening the people of Nagorno-Karabakh. Stop threatening Armenia. Open the Lachin Corridor immediately. Uphold the commitments that Azerbaijan itself made in the November 2020 ceasefire. Now, I understand the dynamics of the broader region are complicated, but the fundamental principles underlying our approach and this crisis should not be. We must stand up for peace, security, and the defense of human rights, which is in stark contrast to Russia, who is not only an unreliable and incapable partner, but is an obstacle to peace and security. As Azerbaijan's forces moved in 2022, Putin's so-called peacekeepers were responsible for upholding the 2020 ceasefire. They stood idly by. Because of the implications for our own moral fortitude and broader stability throughout Europe, the United States and Europe have a responsibility. Over the past year, the United States has been helping facilitate a longer, more durable agreement between Armenia and Azerbaijan. I support any efforts that provide for the lasting peace, security, and fundamental rights of all people in the region. But the reality is this. Talk is worthless when one participant in those talks is carrying out a campaign 
of ethnic cleansing. So I hope our witness will tell us what options she thinks we have to alleviate the immediate humanitarian crisis of Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. What options do we have to compel the government in Baku to finally open access to the Lachin Corridor? What are we doing to dissuade Aliyev from starting yet another conflict? And why are we not more publicly considering sanctions for activity that I think we can all agree is clearly sanctionable? For too long, we have hedged on Aliyev. I have repeatedly expressed my deep uh, opposition about waiving Section 907 of the Freedom Support Act, allowing the United States to send assistance to his regime. This clearly alters the balance of military power between Azerbaijan and Armenia in Aliyev's favor. I think Azerbaijan's actions over the past three years have vindicated my skepticism. I hope the international community is watching. Because when President Aliyev is trying for, tried for crimes against humanity, as I think he should be, the burden of proof uh, will be very high. Right now, the burden of proof is not about convicting him of a crime. It is about preventing this crime. And I'd like to hear about how the department is seeking to do that. I have to be honest with you. Uh, I don't understand uh, when we come together and we say, never again, never again. And here we are, before our plain eyes, seeing history unfold in a way that defies our supposed commitment to never again. Is it so important to us, despite Aliyev getting closer and closer to Russia, that we cozy up with someone who is in the process of creating ethnic cleansing? Is that the history the United States wants? Is that the side of history we want to stand on? I hope not. But I fear, based upon what's happened to date, that this is the path we're headed on. And so to the extent, whatever resources I have to try to get the department to act, uh, I intend to use them. And I look forward to your testimony today. Let me turn to the distinguished ranking member for his remarks, Senator Risch. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, the ongoing instability in Europe and Eurasia has made clear the need for a strong U.S. policy on the Caucasus, a region that continues to grow in importance due to its proximity to regional problematic actors like Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Tensions are rising again between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the Nagorno-Karabakh. The United States must, must push back on policies that disregard the best interests of Armenia and Azerbaijan and run counter to U.S. interests. We should be able to do both. This morning, I hope to hear from our witness about the efforts the U.S. government is taking to bring this conflict to a peaceful, peaceful and sustainable resolution and to reassure our friends about the U.S. Uh, remaining engaged. I share the, uh, the chairman's concerns uh, in this regard. Assistant Secretary Kim, I understand that you were involved last weekend in talks to help open the uh, Lachin Corridor and allow goods to flow again into the contested region. I hope you will detail for us the specifics of what was agreed and whether an end to this humanitarian crisis is in, in sight. Ending this conflict would bring peace to a fractured region and remove one of Russia's key levers of influence in the region. If we fail to form and implement an effective policy, we could see a return of uh, Russian influence or even see China establishing a stronger foothold in the region. 
The United States, along with our European allies, have an important role to play in the future of the Caucasus. Our action in response to the crisis in Nagorno-Karabakh will, uh, will be key to broader U.S. policy toward the region. I look forward to hearing uh, your assessments and, more importantly, your plans to face this challenge. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Acting Assistant Secretary Kim is Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Department of State's Bureau for Europe and Eurasian Affairs. She is a career diplomat, most recently serving our country as ambassador to Albania, where she modeled best practices for proactive engagement with Congress on key issues. Her work as Director for Southeastern European Affairs, Director of the Center for the Study of the Conduct of Diplomacy, Director of the Office of European Security and Political Military Affairs have prepared her for the role she currently holds at a critical time for the South Caucasus and Eastern Europe. Uh, your full statement will be included in the record without objection. I'd urge you to uh, try to summarize it in about five minutes so the committee can have a conversation with you. And uh, with that, uh, you're recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Mr. Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee. Um, this is uh, um, an opportunity to um, brief you on the latest. Um, we've been tracking very carefully um, the concerns that all of you have expressed on this issue. Um, we want to lay out for you the administration's efforts in the South Caucasus, especially with respect to the humanitarian situation in Nagorno-Karabakh. I appreciate the opportunity to update you on our work and hear your perspectives on these uh, pressing issues. As you know, we've been working very intensely over the past few months to address the deteriorating humanitarian situation in Nagorno-Karabakh. We share your sense of urgency. We're deeply concerned by the continued closure of the Lachin Quarter and the impacts this closure is having on the people, the people of Nagorno-Karabakh. I want to be clear that we view the status quo as completely unacceptable. We will not stop working until we have a resolution. We've consistently said that that quarter must be open to commercial, humanitarian, and private traffic. We've conveyed that message both publicly and privately to all levels of the government of Azerbaijan on numerous occasions. Access to food, medicine, baby formula, and energy should never be held hostage. Secretary Blinken, Senior Advisor for Caucasus Negotiations, Lou Bono, colleagues at USAID, and many others, including myself, have been intensely engaged on this issue with a wide range of contacts at all levels to press for the immediate and simultaneous opening of the Lachin Corridor, as well as other routes to humanitarian, commercial, and private traffic to allow passage of urgently needed humanitarian supplies. We welcome the news that one shipment carrying approximately 20 tons of humanitarian supplies passed through the Agdam route into Nagorno-Karabakh on September 12th. But as you said, Mr. Chairman, that is not enough. Additional humanitarian supplies from the International Committee of the Red Cross have been positioned for weeks just outside the Lachin and Agdam checkpoints. Senior Advisor Bono is once again in the region. That's why he's not here with me today to press for these supplies to be allowed into Nagorno-Karabakh immediately and simultaneously. President Aliyev, as well as representatives of Nagorno-Karabakh, have publicly stated that they've agreed to this arrangement. There should be no more delay in implementing this agreement. No more delay. It's essential for these supplies, which have been, again, ready to move for weeks, to finally be delivered to the people in Nagorno-Karabakh now. 
It's also a, a, essential to achieve a more sustainable arrangement for the men, women, and children in, in Nagorno-Karabakh. In this context, we urge the government of Azerbaijan to restore free transit of commercial humanitarian passenger vehicles, both in and out of the Lachin corridor expeditiously, while we recognize also the importance of additional routes. One of the many challenges to a solution in, in this region is deep mistrust following decades of conflict and instability. We need to continue to encourage all sides to work constructively and to encourage those in Nagorno-Karabakh to accept humanitarian assistance from reputable international sources like the ICRC. Whatever compromise is ultimately reached, the only path forward is through dialogue and compromise to build trust. The root causes of instability and conflict that have plagued this region for so long have to be addressed. The administration continues to believe that peace in the South Caucasus has the potential to transform the region and advance U.S. interests. We now have a strategic opportunity to combat malign influence in the region from actors like Russia, China, and Iran by achieving a durable peace that will expand our bilateral economic and security cooperation and provide greater energy security for European partners and allies. Secretary Blinken has hosted three rounds of peace negotiations with the foreign ministers of Armenia and Azerbaijan since last November, and his leadership has yielded results. The sides have made progress on a peace agreement that could stabilize the region. Armenia and Azerbaijan's border commissions have begun discussions on the complicated issue of delimiting the border, and we will continue to support progress on a peace agreement between the sides. Progress will not come easily or quickly, but we're determined to do all we can to support a dignified, dignified, and durable peace, an objective that is imperative in the broader regional context. We've invested in this effort because we believe peace between Armenia and Azerbaijan would have cascading benefits for the region that are in the U.S. national interest. A dignified and durable peace could facilitate regional energy security and boost regional transportation links, in turn improving economic prospects of all countries in the region and improving the lives of millions. The United States could increase our security cooperation in the region and build the confidence and capacity of each country to preserve and protect its sovereignty and independence. In the context of any peace discussions, we've made clear that the rights and security of the ethnic Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh must be protected. This is an essential element of any durable and dignified peace agreement. Azerbaijan must provide internationally verified assurances, verifiable assurances of respect for their rights and their ability to remain in their homes and live without fear. In closing, I want to be clear about a critical issue. The United States will not countenance any effort or action, short-term or long-term, to ethnically cleanse or commit other atrocities against the Armenian people of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. The current humanitarian situation is not acceptable. Humanitarian access through the Lachin Corridor and other routes must be available. Now we will do everything possible to make that happen, and we look forward to continuing to work with you um, and the rest of this committee to make that happen. Well, well thank you. Um, we'll turn to a round of five minutes. Um, 400 tons of essential goods used to go through the Lachin Corridor daily. On August 15th, we saw the first reported death from starvation of a 40-year-old man, and I fear he will not be the last. Do you share uh, my assessment as well as the ICJ's assessment that the blockade may represent a real and imminent risk to the health and life of Karabakh Armenians? 
Yes, we do, Senator. Uh, we share your sense of ur urgency, and that's why we are working this as hard as we are. Well, can you explain to me then why the United States is not or cannot do more to get humanitarian assistance in, as well as what we are doing to support the International uh, Committee on the Red Cross? Um, we've actually undertaken quite a lot of action on that front, Senator. Um, we have been working this nonstop, in person, over the phone, with all different actors, uh, Baku, Yerevan, Stepanakert, uh, to try to move this thing. We finally, I believe, were able to um, work with international partners to get a first uh, truck through. Um, that's a Russian truck, I, I, I would uh, uh, point out. Uh, but the point is that that traffic is now flowing. Um, the agreement is that uh, traffic through the Lachin corridor has to be open. So while I think all of us welcome uh, that one truck uh, through Agdam, I think all of us also agree it is not enough. It's not enough. Lachin has to be open. Other routes can be open too, but Lachin must be open. That's a that's one, a one truck is um, non-negotiable. One truck is not mercy. Absolutely, uh, it's not even what's just. Uh, the reality is, is you know, in addition to the blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh, President Aliyev is reportedly building up troop presence both around Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia's border. Surely we can't take anything he says about wanting to find a solution to the crisis seriously when he is withholding food and also threatening violence. To me, that's pretty outrageous. I'm concerned that we are not, I hear your testimony, but I am concerned that we are not bringing urgency to this situation and taking a whole of government approach to pressure Aliyev. How real are the fears of renewed war? And what is the department doing to avert an Azerbaijani attack on the people of Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia. Has the State Department told him to stand down and threaten sanctions? Has the White House and National Security Council told him to stand down? Has the Pentagon, through contacts in the Azerbaijani military, told him to stand down? These are the problems that I have with the waivers of Section 907. I don't understand. If, if that is about having influence with the Azerbaijanis, they're not working very well. Uh, and if anything, it is uh, giving them a qualitative edge over Armenia's uh, uh, defense. So, so can you answer those questions for me? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Those are uh, important but complicated um, questions. Uh, but there's a simple answer to all of those. Um, I've got here a ream of uh, uh, paper um, listing all the various telephone calls, meetings, travel that we've had to uh, send across a very, very clear message. Number one, Lachin Quarter must be open now, now, no more delay. Number two, we will not tolerate any military action. Uh, we will not tolerate any attack on the people of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. That's very clear. Um, as we do this, uh, we're mindful of, of the fact that, technically speaking, um, the war is uh, not over between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which adds uh, urgency to our commitment 
to try to support a durable and dignified peace agreement between Armenia and Azerbaijan you that know takes into account you know the security the of the people of the National Karabakh. Security Council, if yes, the they Pentagon, have. have they all weighed in? Yes, they, they have. They have all weighed in. Uh, they, so uh, Jake Sullivan hosted uh, the foreign ministers of Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, sorry, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan a few months ago for discussions here in Washington. The Secretary has done several rounds of that. Um, the Secretary has also had um, multiple phone calls with uh, President Aliyev. I have had multiple phone calls with the foreign ministers of both countries over the last couple of weeks alone to drive home those messages. I believe that we are beginning to see a little bit of movement, um, but we're not going to rest, Mr. Chairman, until uh, uh, we actually see real results. All of this is just in, in pursuit of uh, the 2020 agreement, the ceasefire agreement. There, uh, you know, Azerbaijan made agreements. We are just asking uh, even though we think there's much more to ask for, we are just asking for them to live up to their agreements. Now, if the agreements that they made, uh, the commitments that Azerbaijan made in the November 2020 ceasefire, if, if we, it's now three years after nearly, and we are revisiting that which they had agreed to and that have violated. So uh, I, I, I just hope you'll tell the Secretary on my behalf that I would hate to see that this administration stands by and allows ethnic cleansing to take place on their watch and under their eye. We don't have to wait for reports of what happened a decade later. It's happening in real time. I've already raised this question at previous hearings months ago. And I said, people are dying. And I got a response, well, we're not sure about that. People are dying. I don't know how many more have to die. And I certainly expect that if this continues, even if this, if this is abated tomorrow, that we're not going to keep waiving Section 907. We only embolden Aliyev. We give him a message that it's okay. That's the wrong message. Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Assistant Secretary Kim. Um, since the breakup of the Soviet Union, Armenia has been an important security partner for Russia and houses one of the few military bases the Kremlin maintains on foreign soil. It's also remained a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Armenia prioritized its relationship with Russia mainly because it's the only game in town for security on Nagorno-Karabakh. However, given Russia's reluctance to intervene in the 2020 conflict and, and enforce the ceasefire agreement, since Armenia appears to have second, appears Armenia has second thoughts about its longtime partnership with Russia and ships toward the West. Earlier this month, the Armenian Prime Minister said that the country's reluctance on Russia, uh, reliance on Russia, rather, wasn't paying off, particularly as Moscow struggles to supply its own military, let alone partnering with other militaries. He continued, dependence on just one partner in security matters is a strategic mistake. Armenia followed up by announcing its first ever tranche of humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. And this week, U.S. forces commenced 10 days of joint exercises with Armenian soldiers. This is clearly an embarrassing setback for the Kremlin, which has summoned Armenia's ambassador to complain about unfriendly steps the country was taking. 
Does Armenia's recent actions represent a permanent shift away from Russia or simply a shot across the bow for Moscow to intervene more uh, forcibly in Nagorno-Karabakh? Do you have a, a thoughts on this? What, what direction is Armenia going? Senator, thanks for that question. Um, I think uh, after Russia took the action that it did against uh, its neighbor Ukraine on February 24th last year, all of Russia's neighbors are uh, sleeping with one eye open, um, as they should be. I think all of them are um, understanding that as they watch this uh, vivid, grotesque uh, demonstration of Russia's disregard for the territorial integrity and sovereignty of their neighbors, they are beginning to have second thoughts uh, about uh, having uh, invited Russian troops onto their territory, um, relying on Russia as their sole source of uh, energy, um, uh, hosting Russian military installations in their, uh, in their lands. Um, and, and this is a, uh, a set of questions um, that uh, deserve to come up. Uh, what it also does is it represents an opportunity for us to develop these relationships. And so, Sandra, as you point out, um, our military is out there in Armenia to conduct our first ever bilateral um, military exercise uh, with Armenia. And we're going to continue to take advantage okay, of it. Okay, so specifically, okay. You, you were very broad when you started off the, your remarks there. Specifically with regard to Armenia, is this, is Armenia, again, is this a shot across the bow to Moscow to get them to pay more attention to Nagorno-Karabakh, or is it uh, more about they want to move away from Russia permanently and more toward the West? Do you have an opinion on that? I think it's too early to tell. Too early to tell? But it, it doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't jump in there to turn it into exactly what we would like to see it be, which is uh, a, a, a real decision um, to uh, uh, partner with us as opposed to Russia. Uh, but to get there, we need to be present, um, which is why our assistance to Armenia uh, counts so much and our partnership counts so much. So given Armenia's reliance economically, militarily, and so forth on Russia, are there concerns or is there a risk that Russia might respond more forcibly if uh, they continue to see the Armenians move toward the West? Um, I think Russia has proven itself and Putin has proven himself to be uh, vindictive um, to anyone who does not bend to his will. So, yes, we are very much on the alert for that. So what's, what's your thoughts on the strategy of how we walk that line then between continuing to develop relationships with Armenia and not triggering some sort of Russian response that would be more forceful? I think we've got to keep uh, a close watch uh, on the situation. We need to increase uh, the, the array of assistance that we provide uh, to Armenia, whether it's developmental assistance, uh, whether it's uh, defense partnerships, um, uh, security activities, um, and expand those out as much as we can in a way that is um, uh, acceptable for the Armenians themselves, right? We, th this can't be a unilateral move. So we gotta do this in true partnership with Armenia. Um, and make sure that we're providing the support that they need um, to make the turn that they'd like to make. So Russian sanctions evasion has been a particular cause uh, problem in the caucus. Uh, and in Armenia has allowed um, Russia to access key microchips and electronics that Russia needs for its war on Ukraine. Has Armenian enforcement of these sanctions improved or does it remain a country of concern for sanctions evasions? I believe that they have been uh, observing those sanctions. 
they, they've been observing the sanctions. They've been shutting off Russia from getting microchips and so forth? I believe so, but I'm going to have to... Yeah, we'll take that question back and get back to you, sir. Great. Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, thanks. Thank you. Madam Secretary, thank you very much for your service. We appreciate it very much. We want to have a strong strategic relationship with both Azerbaijan and Armenia. And I think we have an opportunity now with the relationship declining between Armenia and Russia to be able to achieve that. But it depends upon us standing by our values as we resolve the issues in the contested area. I agree with Senator Menendez. The humanity crisis is horrible. And every day we wait, more people are dying. And the United States needs to take decisive action. And in doing that, in bringing the parties together and enforcing the corridor, safe corridor for the humanitarian assistance and having a ceasefire and setting up the climate to resolve on a more permanent basis the governance of the region. But to do that, we have to be able to show that we're serious about this. And I just really want to underscore the point that Senator Menendez said. When you routinely give the waiver under Section 907, you're saying that, uh, that Azerbaijan has demonstrated steps to cease all blockades and other offensive uses of force against Armenia. And that's just not the case. So we, we lose credibility when that happens, when we aren't prepared to take decisive steps based upon our values. Yes, we want to have a strong relationship with Azerbaijan. They're an important part of country for us. But as President Biden has said frequently, our foreign policy will be wrapped within our values. And it's difficult for some of us to understand that based upon the actions in that region. I'm going to mention one specific case that was brought to my attention in Azerbaijan, and that is the activist who was imprisoned, Gubad Ibad Uglo. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that case or not, but the United States doesn't stand by and let activists be imprisoned because of their speech, particularly with countries that we want to have a strategic relationship with, including a financial relationship with. We consider sanctions for those types of activities. Tell me how the administration is handling those types of activities within Azerbaijan and why the continuation of the waiver doesn't give the wrong signal in trying to resolve the conflict. Thank you, Senator. Um, President Biden and Secretary uh, Blinken have made very clear that human rights and our values are at the center of our foreign policy. Um, and we take every opportunity um, to drive that home uh, with all of our partners, um, every country that we deal with, including with Azerbaijan. And as you rightly point out, we have an opportunity and an imperative to develop a strategic relationship with Armenia as well as Azerbaijan. Um, in that context, uh, when we look at um, requesting a, a waiver for 907, uh, we want to make sure that we're doing two things. First of all, that none of the assistance that we provide could ever be used um, uh, for offensive action against Armenia, and two, that it is in the U.S. national security interest to do that. 
In the past, when we have requested 907 waivers, we've used that assistance um, to help the Armenians beef up their border security, um, especially uh, with, uh, uh, with Iran, and that has rendered um, concrete results in terms of stopping uh, counter uh, in, in, start, in terms of uh, stopping narco trafficking, um, which uh, is used to finance the uh, IRGC. So there are real results uh, from that. Um, but we hear you on uh, needing to be very serious and to be very thorough um, as we uh, deliberate on whether or not to request a 907 uh, waiver. Um, we take that responsibility very seriously. I would note that uh, the last 907 waiver expired in June. We have not submitted uh, a new waiver request yet because we are reviewing the situation very carefully. I also want to assure you, Senator, that we look at the wide range of tools that are available to us to um, influence um, the uh, behavior, um, to persuade others um, along, and uh, we, will, let me we, just we won't rule anything out. Let me just interrupt at that point because I have a limited amount of time. Uh, I hope you'll get back to me in regards to the specific case I mentioned. Okay, I Thank sure you. will. Uh, and, and let me just, if you read the language of the waiver, it's not the way Congress wrote it. I mean, I think you have to follow the, the waiver language, and it's not the use of the funds, it's the activities on the ground. So uh, that, to me, is, is not carrying out the directive from Congress. And then lastly, let me just point this out. I've been in Congress, the House and the Senate, for a long time, and this conflict predates my service in the House of Representatives, let alone the United States Senate. I serve on the Helsinki Commission, chaired it many years. I know the OSCE Minsk group. That group started in the 90s and has been declared dead by some, but certainly has not been effective in ending this. We know about the violations of the sea fires over and over and over again. This conflict has gone on way too long. We saw that when we've had long-standing conflicts, U.S. leadership has been instrumental in ending those conflicts. We've seen that in our hemisphere. U.S. leadership is needed desperately to end this humanitarian crisis and give us a path towards a resolution of the conflict. Senator, we agree with you fully. That's why we've got the special advisor, the senior advisor out in the region. We've been engaged for weeks, months, years. That's also why the Secretary of State has personally been engaged in these peace uh, discussions, and we'll continue to do that. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thanks for convening this hearing. Uh, thank you for your testimony today. I mean, let me first just associate myself with the remarks of the, the chairman and Senator Cardin and others. This is obviously um, a crisis, uh, one that requires active U.S. leadership. I understand the difficult question regarding the pressure points on Azerbaijan, but at this point, um, I think you have to um, you know, put all possible tools on the table because gentle diplomacy does not seem to be working. Um, I guess I want to ask you a question about the state of the Russia-Azerbaijan relationship. Um, because we have been hard at work, along with our European colleagues, over the course of the last decade, trying to help Europe slowly wean itself off of dependence on Russian gas and oil. And part of that strategy has been to deliver more Azerbaijani gas and oil to Europe. 
we think that that's a more responsible choice. Um, I think we now have to question whether or not that premise stands. And it is interesting that Russia is making these new overtures to Azerbaijan because it sees that their energy products are going to matter more to Europe. And to the extent that Russia and Azerbaijan can link up on national security policy, um, then the leverage that Russia is losing, it perhaps could gain back. Um, And so what are the implications for the U.S. and for Europe as Azerbaijan and Russia draw closer? What's the nature of that relationship? And did we perhaps make the wrong bet by moving uh, more Azerbaijani resources into Europe? Could we come back and could Europe come back to ultimately regret that decision? Thank you for that question. Um, The relationship between Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, everybody else in the region uh, with Russia is uh, dictated by geography and history. Um, and it's not just the history of a, of a few years in the Soviet years, it's, it's generations and, and centuries here. Um, we are working hard um, to rebalance that um, in our favor. Um, what we also notice is that um, this agreement that uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan reached in November of 2020, um, we're not a party to it. Um, And that agreement calls for the Russians to provide peacekeepers to enforce the terms of that agreement. Um, I think it's fair to say that the Russians haven't delivered. Um, And that's part of the reason why you're seeing the uh, the, the Armenians uh, beginning to question that relationship. Um, On the broader issue of uh, energy, that's an urgent need. All of the countries in Europe and around the world, I would say, um, have uh, concluded that it is not a good idea to be uh, sole source to Russia for their energy needs. Um, We have had um, an effective uh, um, uh, period of work with the Azerbaijanis in uh, helping them to bring, to double the amount of uh, gas that they will be bringing to Europe uh, by the year 2027 from uh, about 10 to about uh, 20 BCM. Um, that, that southern gas corridor is extremely important uh, for ensuring that there is energy diversity um, for uh, Turkey, Greece, Bulgaria, uh, potentially uh, Albania and, and uh, definitely uh, Italy and possibly into the Western Balkans. So we cannot underestimate how important that is. There's also the, uh, the oil pipeline that runs from uh, uh, Baku, Tbilisi to Jehan. Um, and we need that to keep functioning. Um, the, the, the main task here is to enable our friends, partners, allies to break free of the stranglehold that Russian energy has had on them over the last few uh, generations. I, listen, I, 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 right, but our alternative is turning from dependence on one dictatorship to a different dictatorship. And the question now becomes, uh, are we funding Azerbaijan's efforts uh, to impose a brutal blockade on the Armenian people? Um, and, and so, it, again, I think it, it underscores the importance of the ultimate goal, which is to break the United States and Europe free of dependence on 
oil and gas, period, stop, <laughs> because there seem to be no great choices uh, in, uh, in the region. Um, uh, I do appreciate the leadership that Secretary Blinken has shown here. I think it is important that we're playing a central role here, uh, and I'm glad to have this update. We hope to uh, stay in close touch. Thank you, Mr. So, Senator, I'd like to just footstomp one point that you made about energy diversity, source, roots, uh, uh, and, and that means that we don't want uh, our friends, uh, allies, and partners to be single source to any country or to any type or any route. Um, that's not in their interest. We, we, want, we want our friends, allies, and partners to have multiple ways to get energy so that nobody can hold them hostage uh, based on energy needs. Right, but we are, just, we are seeing a remarkable amount of coordination between countries that are part of that system of multiple supports. Most recently, the Saudis and the Russians essentially colluding to keep the price high enough in order to continue to fund the war. So um, this strategy of being um, dependent on a system and series of dictatorships, um, again, may not necessarily bear the strategic gain that we think it does. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Secretary Kim, I associate myself with many of the questions that have been asked. I want to um, offer an observation and then a question that's a follow-up from something that Senator Cardin was asking about. So the observation is this. When following the Azerbaijani incursion into Armenia in 2020, Russia, who is a treaty-bound security partner of Armenia in the Collective Security Treaty Organization, took no action to defend its CSTO member. Now, contrast that with NATO, uh, NATO linking arms because of American leadership and the leadership of others to battle against, to, to, to help Ukraine battle against the illegal war, the illegal invasion by Russia. Sweden and Finland coming into NATO. Sweden's accession is still pending, but just this week they committed to increase their own defense spending by 28% to reach the 2% commitment of, of NATO members. And so look at, look at a NATO that's getting stronger, that's making more investments, that's demonstrating its mettle, and then a CSTO where Russia won't even take action to support somebody that it's treaty bound to. I think that speaks volumes. The question I wanted to return to is the question about Dr. Gubad Ibadoglu, who is a National Endowment for Democracy Fellow in 2015. He has lived in New Jersey and Virginia and more, most recently, North Carolina. He's tied with American universities, especially the University of North Carolina. Um, he is a prominent Azerbaijani scholar, and he's written about the very issue that Senator Murphy was asking about this, the, the fact that oil revenues often go hand-in-hand hand with corruption and, and poor governance. And so as a scholar, he's written about that. And because those writings are unpopular with the rulers of Azerbaijan, he and his wife were arrested in July with no due process. He remains imprisoned uh, in very poor conditions, and he has numerous health issues. Um, he celebrated his birthday on Tuesday. What can you share about the department's interaction with the government, government of Azerbaijan regarding Dr. Ibadoglu? We have uh, raised this case, and we will continue to do so. Um, uh, if and when uh, the uh, Senate confirms the next uh, nominee to be our ambassador to Azerbaijan, um, I can assure you that um, this 
gentleman's case will be at the top of his agenda when it comes to pursuing uh, um, these types of uh, issues. We, we would like to also reach out to you periodically to find out about the status Absolutely. of this case and even before a confirmation. I just hope that we raise it again and again and again because Absolutely. I think the unjust imprisonment of a NED fellow with ties to many of our states is something that needs to be top priority and I would appreciate uh, you uh, taking that back. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your uh, testimony here today. I want to follow up on a couple of questions that have been posed by my colleagues, and I want to uh, second the remarks made by the chairman in his opening uh, statement as well on Section 907, uh, because, as you know, the administration did make the certification, I believe it was in July of last year. Is that correct, the waiver? June of last year. And um, I'm... I'm looking for the report that accompanied uh, that. I saw the certification itself because the, the statute does require uh, that the uh, State Department provide information on the status of negotiations for peaceful settlement between Armenia and Azerbaijan and the impact uh, of United States assistance on those negotiations. Uh, we'll be checking to see exactly what the finding was then, but you would agree today that the provision of U.S. assistance did not have a positive impact on the negotiations. Isn't that the case today? Senator, respectfully, uh, I'm not sure that I would agree with uh, that statement. Um, we make sure through a very thorough process that has gotten even more, more thorough. Um, I understand that uh, the No, GAO just so I understand, I'm not report. talking about the process. I'm asking today, if today you had to prevent, present this report to Congress, if you exercised the waiver and had to present the report to Congress, uh, could you conclude that the assistance, U.S. assistance, uh, was having a positive impact on the negotiations? We're, we are going through those uh, issues very thoroughly, which is why you haven't seen the waiver come through yet. So let me just uh, state a, uh, read a statement that the State Department made uh, on April 23rd of this year uh, in response to Azerbaijan's uh, establishment of the uh, blockade uh, of the Lachin Corridor. Uh, it reads, this is the State Department saying, and I quote, the United States is deeply concerned that Azerbaijan's establishment of a checkpoint on the Lachin Corridor undermines efforts to establish confidence in the peace process. So that was in April. That, do you agree with the State Department? Yes, statement? that's that's correct. Okay. Um, any 907 assistance that's gone through um, is targeted towards uh, counterterrorism and border security, uh, mostly along uh, the border with Iran. Right, right. But so you 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 stand by the State Department statement, I hope, from April, which was that yes, uh, the the actions by Azerbaijan undermine efforts to establish confidence in the peace process. Right. Yes. Okay. Has anything happened between April 23rd and today that would lead you to believe that uh, providing assistance by exercising the waiver would improve the prospects for peace? So it, that's, um, those are in some ways um, a little bit uh, separated um, because as I said earlier, the, any 907 assistance that's gone through um, is directed at counterterrorism uh, objectives that are in our interest. 
um, along with border security and counter-narcotics uh, activities that are also in our interest. Um, that's produced real results in, in, in terms of addressing our concerns about our IRGC funding. Um, with respect to uh, the uh, blockage of the Lachin Corridor, we share your sense of urgency on this. Um, nobody is sitting still on this. I want to assure you that we work night and day on this issue. Um, uh, I, I, I appreciate I your testimony. I'm just, I'm just going to be interested in reading if, if you exercise the waiver this time around, which I, I hope you won't because I don't think um, the conditions on the ground merit it. But if you do, it will be interesting to see what the State Department puts in its required report on the question of whether or not the, the impact of U.S. assistance on the negotiations. I, I know you are arguing and that the assistance helps advance counterterrorism objectives. The report requires an assessment about whether any of this assistance also helps, uh, what its impact Understood. on the peace process is. And I think, you know, based on your statements from April, the State Department statements for April, it's pretty clear that at least as of then, in your own words, State Department's own words, it was undermining confidence in the peace process. Um, and I don't see anything that's changed from that day to this. Um, so look, I, I've got other questions to submit for the record. One of my concerns has been the impact on our demining efforts yeah. in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, many of us have been very active uh, in providing funds uh, to demine that area. Uh, and all the reports we're getting from people on the ground who are involved in the demining effort uh, is that the blockade is having a, a significant harmful impact uh, on their efforts. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree with that, and that's why we're working hard to uh, get those cord uh, the Lachin Corridor and other routes open as soon as possible. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Madam Secretary, you just said in response to Senator Van Hollen that well, Section 907 in our waivers is about border security and counter-narcotics and their performance in that regard. Is, is, did I understand you correctly? Yes, sir. There's a, a number of uh, objectives related to our assistance, to any security assistance that we have with uh, Azerbaijan. And, and those are? So those are to strengthen in the interoperability of uh, Azerbaijani forces with the U.S. and NATO, because um, that's in our interest, um, to provide opportunities for uh, Western indoctrination and education, um, to help secure the 475-mile-long border with uh, Iran, and to secure energy sources and routes that are critical to uh, our European friends and allies. Okay. So that is the limited universe under which I guess the department looks at Section 907. So is it in our national interest to stop ethnic cleansing? Absolutely, sir. Well, I don't hear that in the list, and I don't hear that in the process of determining whether Section 907 should be waived. Um, if we allow, for whatever reasons, whatever uh, uh, security, border security, counter-narcotics, for ethnic cleansing to take place, and we look the other way, we send a global message of what our priorities are. We say to others in the world, you can do that as long as you work with us on counter-narcotics, border security, and other such things. That would be a horrific 
horrific results of a policy that would be blindsided to the fundamental proposition that if there's a country in the world that stands uh, for human rights, it's the United States of America. I've listened to our president, who both when I sat over there, when he was the chairman of this committee, and, and when he was vice president, and of course as president, has spoken about the importance as part of the fabric of our foreign policy in terms of human rights. But speaking of it is meaningless. It is a hollow promise without action. So I don't know how we can see a positive result under Section 907 when we have the violations of the 2020 ceasefire. I don't see how we can have a positive result when we have the amassing of troops by Azerbaijan. I don't see how we can have a positive result when uh, Azerbaijan kills in cold blood unarmed Armenian soldiers uh, and sexually abuses and uh, mutilates a female Armenian soldier. I don't understand how Section 907 leads to a more peaceful resolution when they are in the verge of ethnically cleansing 120,000 Armenians in Karabakh. I don't understand it. I don't understand how you, one can stretch the proposition of what Congress met in Section 907 that way. And so when I hear you dictate what are the elements, well, those elements don't cover the dire consequences that are happening right now. Senator Shaheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you for being here. Um, Secretary Kim, I, I have to say I share the concerns that have been expressed um, about Azerbaijan's continued obstruction of the Leichen Corridor. Leichen Corridor. Um, in New Hampshire, we have a large Armenian diaspora, and we hear consistently from them about their concerns that Azerbaijan's blockade has resulted in severe humanitarian suffering, that it should be lifted immediately. And as probably one of the few members of Congress who's actually spent some time in Armenia, I have to say, this is a problem that we ought to be able to help resolve. One of the things that I know would be helpful would be for the Senate to confirm the ambassador um, to Azerbaijan. I think it would really be helpful for us to have an ambassador there who can make the case for why we need to address what's happening um, in Nagorno-Karabakh. So I hope that the Senate will be able to get that done. I understand that the nominee is on the business meeting for next week, so hopefully we can move that, Mr. Chairman. Um, can you speak to what role Russia is currently playing in um, Nagorno-Karabakh and any negotiations that are happening? Thank you, Senator. Um, and we agree with you um, on um, uh, the need to get an ambassador out to Azerbaijan as soon as possible. Um, on the role of Russia, um, as you know, um, Russia is uh, the one that brokered the ceasefire between Armenia and Azerbaijan um, after the horrific violence in uh, 2020. 
um, and they put themselves forward as peacekeepers and guarantors for uh, the terms of the, that agreement. The United States was not at all involved, um, and uh, uh, in our assessment, um, and I uh, think I'm safe to say in the assessment of Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, the Russians have uh, not uh, done what they were supposed to do. Um, just a few months ago, exactly a year ago, um, we saw violence flare up again on the Russian watch. Um, so I think it, it's, uh, it, it's reasonable to demand that the Russians do their job um, to prevent uh, further violence. Um, I think it's also incumbent on the Russians to make sure that that Lachin corridor is opened again. Um, that's their responsibility as peacekeepers. Um, we're doing our level best. We're not a party to that agreement, but we're doing our level best, and we will do more than our level best because we think it's absolutely urgent um, to get food into the people of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, food medical supplies should not be held hostage to political disputes, um, and we're going to continue to do that. Um, I think the whole world should be asking uh, what is Russia doing in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh to help the situation. Well, thank you. I very much appreciate that statement. Uh, do they still have 2,000 peacekeepers on the ground, and are they actually doing anything, the people who are supposed to be the peacekeepers? So we believe that uh, they do uh, have about that number of peacekeepers. Uh, we understand that um, their troops um, get supplies uh, uh, airdropped in by, by, by helicopter. Um, we do note that that one truck, the one truck, that went in a couple of days ago is, uh, is a Russian Red Cross truck. But again, that's not enough. That's not enough. Um, that's not what the Russians uh, uh, took on as a responsibility to, to secure um, the people of Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and uh, it's, it's not what uh, both the, the representatives of Nagorno-Karabakh um, and President Aliyev agreed to in principle, which was that they would open Lachin and other corridors immediately and simultaneously without delay. Thank you. I, I don't have much time left, but I did want to raise the role of Georgia because Georgia has previously played a constructive role in trying to facilitate negotiations between Ar Armenia and Azerbaijan. And um, as we know, <coughs> excuse me, the domestic political situation there is very challenging. I appreciate the response I received to a letter to Secretary Blinken and Administrator Powell to the, with respect to a long-term election mission. Can you talk about why that might be helpful? Um, Georgia uh, used to be the, um, uh, the poster child um, for um, recovery, recovery and resilience um, and uh, flourishing uh, after the breakup of the, the Soviet Union. We have uh, been discouraged to see a democratic backsliding in recent years. Um, we want to make sure that uh, we keep democratic um, institutions and practices front and center um, so that uh, we are able to um, uh, ensure that the Georgian government delivers on the will of the Georgian people, 85% of whom want to see their country in the EU. 
Um, sadly, uh, Vice President of uh, the European Council, um, Josef Borrell, was just in uh, Georgia and made clear that thus far the Georgian government has only met three of the 12 conditions uh, to open up negotiations for EU membership. Um, and that's a responsibility that uh, the Georgian government has to bear. We want to see the Georgian government be more responsive uh, to their people. Um, and uh, we would like to be in a position to work with them to help the country of Georgia and the people of Georgia um, take uh, firm steps forward on their Euro-Atlantic path. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. If I could have just another minute or two. Um, the letter that I received um, has the State Department pointing out that plans for a long-term election observation mission will be finalized in the coming months. But that timetable doesn't give us much time to actually prepare um, for what needs to happen in order to ensure a free and fair election. So can you tell me, has the government of Georgia agreed to a long-term election observation mission, and what happens to Georgia's accession agenda if next year's elections um, don't accurately reflect the will of the people? Senator, if you'll allow, I'll get back to you on this specific timetable. That would be great. I would really appreciate it. I think this is a place where, as you point out, we know that the people of Georgia are looking towards the EU. They want to um, assimilate with, um, with the West, and they want their government to move in that direction. And I think it's imperative for us to take every opportunity that we can to help them make that transition. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, I'd ask unanimous consent to include uh, for the record testimony from the executive director of the Armenian Assembly of America, and without objection, so ordered. Uh, one final question, Mr. Secretary. Uh, let me ask you, uh, why do you think, despite its signed commitments and a ruling by the International Court of Justice to open the Lachin Corridor, that Aliyev is not opening the corridor? Um, we could probably have that discussion in a different setting, sir. What would be classified about a simple answer to a question as to why is he not keeping, we've, we've discussed that there was a ceasefire, there was an agreement, there's been a judgment by the International Court of Justice, uh, there's been a tense by the administration, there's an EU uh, effort that uh, he has not been cooperative with. Why, why would such a, a conversation need to be classified? I think that there are elements, uh, Mr. Chairman, that I would like to be able to discuss with you in a, more, in a different setting. Well, I'll, I'll give you an unclassified answer. He doesn't want to open the corridor because he, he is in the process of trying to subjugate these people by starvation or by the threat of starvation at the end of the day and subject them to his will. That doesn't have to be classified. I am, I'm amazed sometimes. I've been doing this for 31 years. I'm amazed sometimes at what the department comes before this committee and says. I have other questions. I'll submit them for the record. There's a vote going on on the Senate floor. 
without the record for this hearing will remain open until the close of business on Friday, September 15th. The thanks to the committee for your appearance. This hearing is adjourned.